All right, so Happy New Year. We've, got, we've started a new series called Christ is Life. Uh, we're going to study through 1 John as we look through this series. Uh, and, and just to start laying some of the groundwork, I want to talk about a guy named Zygmunt Bauman. Now, Zyg- who's heard of him? I'm just curious. Anybody heard of Zygmunt Bauman? I figured almost nobody in this room would have heard of him. He's a sociologist who wrote a book called Liquid Modernity years ago. Now, this book he posted, he, he, he posts a theory in this book that I kind of think is playing out. We're watching it play out. And this whole idea is that uh, we're, we're not into post-modernity, but what he would call liquid modernity. So he's looking at the communities around, and he'd say that because we are in, now I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to paraphrase this really loosely. If you want to know all of it, go read the book, Liquid Modernity. Uh, it might bore you to tears, but that's okay. So, uh, but his whole idea is that we live in kind of a transient, individualistic culture. And because we live in this transient, individualistic culture, we've lost what he would call authentic community. The idea that we are glued together somehow. And he actually says, if you examine societies where we are moving into liquid modernity, you will see stuff that tries to facilitate community. Things like parks, community centers, the aquaplex, rec centers, places that, that people can gather together and feel like they belong, that they have a sense of belonging, a sense of community, but really it's what I would call community light. It's not real community. It makes you feel better, but in real community, you're kind of forced, you're glued together, and, and that real community, that authentic community, starts to like chisel away the rough edges that we have. Because every single one of us have some rough edges that need to be chiseled away. So we live in a liquid, a fluid society where things are constantly changing. And oftentimes our church, the congregation that we gather in, reflects that culture. You don't like a sermon, so you leave. Someone gets on your nerves, so you leave. And you don't hang around long enough to have the rough edges chiseled down. We live in a culture of liquid community. Community light. So how does a church move beyond a reflection of our culture and have an authentic community? I think the answer is to be rooted and grounded in Christ and the grace that he offers us. So part of that is recognizing that I don't have it all figured out, that my theology can actually change. If the word of God convicts and and confronts my theology, I can say, you know what? I can change. And part of it is recognizing and offering grace, recognizing that, you know, I I use the example of church governance. One of the reasons why church governance, how the church is governed, is so contentious, and there's so many different variations, is because the Bible doesn't exactly lay it out 
perfectly. So what we're doing is we kind of look and we say, based on how I read Scripture, this is the best I've got. And when I can look at it that way, instead of saying, this is it, pure and simple, when I read it like that, then I can actually get contentious and I can say, you're either in or you're out. But when I look at it and I say, this is the best that we've got, based on the information that we have, then I'm willing to give more grace to other people as well. But that plays out with all kinds of other issues. So part of having this authentic community is being humble. Coming, gathering together on a Sunday morning in humility. But that humility can only truly come from Christ. So so the whole point that I'm making here is the only way to have authentic community where we actually begin to smooth out each other's rough edges is if we are rooted and grounded in Christ and his grace. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks. But before we get into that, we're going to get into some questions. It is fifth Sunday, and I like to answer a couple questions. If you have questions, we have a little spot on our bulletin in the back that uh, sometimes, you know, when you're listening to a sermon, a question pops up. And maybe you don't want to forget that question. Maybe you're too embarrassed to come up to me afterwards and ask that question. So you can write it down on the back of your bulletin, turn it into the offering box, and I collect these and eventually I answer them. So I usually like to do it on a fifth Sunday. So we've got two questions that I'll answer today. The first one is, does prayer count if it is not out loud? So if it's in your heart, if you're not saying it out loud, does it count? The short answer is yes, it counts. A little bit longer of an answer is, first off, if we look at 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, meaning always be praying. How can I always be in prayer if it always has to be out loud? I might look like a psychopath if I'm walking around constantly just being in prayer. You're in the middle of a business meeting and you're in prayer? That might be a little distracting. So, so part of the way that we can fulfill that is to pray in our head. But I also think uh, Romans 8.28 gives us another example of this. Let me uh, turn there. Romans 8.27 and 28, I think, are helpful. So uh, Paul is writing, and he says, And he who searches the heart, he being uh, God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we've got this picture here of God searching our hearts and and the mind that we have because the Spirit intercedes. So the Holy Spirit is the one who intercedes for us, right? So the Holy Spirit is interacting with our spirit and interacting with our heart and interacting with our mind to intercede on our behalf to God. uh, And we know that those who love God, sorry, let me back up. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as for as we ought. So it's specifically talking about prayer here, right? And the Holy Spirit is going to intercede on our behalf, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there are times, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I know I have experienced this. When there are times when you are like just your your spirit, your body, your your being is groaning and you are praying to God but you don't even know what to pray 
when there has been such a tragedy in your life that you don't even know what to pray, you don't know how to pray, and you just know that you are groaning or screaming your heart's desire towards God. Well, I think the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf at that point. So not only do you not have to pray out loud, but I think the Holy Spirit intercedes for you even when you don't know the words to use as you pray. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, that God is interacting with you when you have put your faith and trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit is indwelling, with you, indwelling in you. God is interacting with you on a whole other level that is even difficult for us to fathom. So the short answer is, no, you don't have to pray out loud for it to count. And the longer answer is, even if you don't know the words to use, but your heart is groaning for God, the Holy Spirit can lead you in that prayer and actually intercedes for you on that prayer. This verse is also another one. Uh, Larry and I were just talking about worship, and, and I just love how he takes this verse because the Holy Spirit is the one that is leading us, the one that is guiding us, even when we don't know how to pray. And I think we can apply that to worship as well. And so Larry doesn't like the term worship, pat or worship leader. And I kind of, I agree with him on that. Because when we use the term worship leader, we look towards someone up here and we say, lead me in worship. And then our worship becomes dependent upon the person on stage, right? And then we can become like, well, that person's not a good worship leader because I wasn't interacting with God. Or that person is amazing because I was interacting with God. And it's all dependent upon them. And then we've actually put, I believe, we've put someone up here on stage in the place of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit that leads us in worship. So Larry likes the term music director. And I, I, I happen to join him on that. There's a person up here that directs the music. But it's the Holy Spirit that leads us in worship. And what's amazing about that is it gives us a lot of freedom when it comes to worship then. Worship styles. Worshiping at different churches. Going into another country and worshiping there. Even if you don't understand the language that they're worshiping in, it is the Holy Spirit that leads you in that worship. And then all of a sudden, your, your interaction with God, your worshiping God, becomes less about the atmosphere and a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit leading you in your heart. So then on to the next question. The next question is, what are the three best versions of the Bible for study and why? And uh, I, I, the short answer is the version you'll read. That's the short answer. Uh, so there's a whole lot more, it can get a lot more complicated than that, but if you pick up a version or a translation that you won't read, then that translation's going to do you no good. Now, I know some senior saints here that love the King James, the old King James, and that's great. If that's the, if that's the translation you have read your whole life and, and you're good with that translation, keep going forward with that translation. Uh, but if that translation is difficult for you to read, I would say that's not the translation for you. Uh, I know some people that want to pick up the King James and read it, and they actually end up becoming more confused, and it just becomes more difficult, and eventually they put it back down 
because it was so difficult for them to get through. And I would say that's a bad translation for you. Don't pick up the King James if it's going to be confusing to you. So to understand this, it's also helpful to understand a little bit about translation theory. Translation, translating from the Hebrew and the Greek can get really difficult into the English for, uh, for multiple reasons. One of those is that the each, each word in both languages has a range of meaning. And what I mean by that is, let's just take the word sick. What does that mean? Well, if we're at the bike park and my son does an awesome jump and I'm like, bro, that was sick. What does that mean? It means you did an awesome job. That was amazing. But now we're at the dinner table and my son says something disgusting and my mom, or my mom, his mom says, that was sick. What does she mean? That was gross. But now, let's say he's stuck in his bed and he's having a fever and I say, you're sick. What do I mean? I mean, you are you have a cold or a fever or a flu, you're sick. So you see there's a whole range of meanings just with the word sick. Now we take this uh, uh, with every single English word, and you've got r- r- all kinds of different meanings. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we don't, word studies aren't necessarily bad, but what I find people do a lot when they do a word study is they find a whole range of meanings, and then they just pick one that they like. I think the best way to find out what this word means is typically in the context. The context is key. Just like my example with my son. If we're at the bike park, that gives you a context. If he's in bed and has a fever, that gives the context. If he's saying something gross at the dinner table, that gives you context. That's going to help you know the meaning. So it's okay to look at the range of of the meanings in the Greek, but what's more important is what's the context. But there's also the same thing that comes to the Greek, and the Hebrew. There's a whole range. In fact, today we're going to read a word called, or a word in the Greek, plerau. Now, we looked at that same word in the Sermon on the Mount, and the way Matthew uses it, when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to plerau it, it meant to fulfill. But it can also mean to complete. And today, First John, he'll say, uh, I, I write that you would have joy. Well, plerau joy complete joy. Now, does that mean that we should fulfill the joy? I don't know. Context is key. But there's a whole range of meanings. Beyond that, and one of the reasons why we constantly have updated translations is our language changes. It's one of the reasons why the King James is so difficult to read. There was a time when fast meant to to hold securely or to be secure. Fast, secure, But when you read fast, what do you read typically now? You read quickly. That can really change the meaning of something. Another one is accursed. There was a time when the King James was being translated that to be accursed meant to... uh, uh Uh-oh, it's it's slipping my mind right now. To to be accursed meant to have like uh, a uh, uh, strong tendency towards or holding tight towards something. Whereas now, what do you think of when you hear accursed? Like kicked out, evil, wicked. So, man, that's, a, that's like almost opposite, right? Or devoted, that's what it used to mean. To be devoted towards something. To be accursed meant to be devoted. 
That's a whole different scenario, right? So our language changes, so we need to constantly update things. Last night, Jen and I watched a video about the Gen Z translation. If you're not familiar with it, go look it up and you'll have a good laugh. <laughs> Anyways, there's a whole lot going on there. So then you need to understand, so, uh, so what's the most important or what's the best version or translation? The one you'll read. But beyond that, I think it also is helpful to understand translation theory. So we have up here uh, a little table, a little chart, and we've got the more formal. So the more formal means like a word-for-word -word translation. Uh, the NASB, New King James Version, ESV, these are, these are a little bit more accurate when it comes to word-for-word. -word. NASB is kind of your scholarly. If you're in seminary, you'll probably be using an NASB. On the far end of the scale is called the functional side. So this is translators that, uh, that don't go word for word, but more idea for idea. Now, you might ask, why would they do this? And the reason is the Greek and the Hebrew sentence structure can be a bit confusing. And they don't, uh, their sentence structures aren't the same as the English. So to go exactly word for word can make it difficult to read. Sometimes the NASB is just difficult to read. So what some translators want to do is they want to give you, instead of a word for word, they want to give you an idea for an idea. The, the uh, most used example is the message. Eugene Peterson wanted to give you an idea for an idea translation. The problem most people have with idea for idea is they're doing the interpreting for you. They're doing the translating and the interpreting. So if you want to get more exact, you go NASB. If you want to get an idea for what some, how someone might interpret an idea, you go more for the message. And then there's a whole spectrum in between, right? So what I would actually suggest isn't just one. I like the idea of the three best. When I'm doing study to prepare for a sermon, I typically read King James... New King James, NASB, ESV, and The Message. So I'm reading out of five different translations there. And I'm comparing and contrasting. I'm looking at, and I'm asking the question, why would they translate it this way? And how did the NASB do it? And there's a lot of times with The Message where I'm like, I don't like how he translated this at all. But it does help me ask the question, but why did he translate it this way? So even if you disagree with the translation, sometimes it's good just to read it and ask the question, but why? Because that can help you in your understanding. It can help you look at it through a different lens. So that's what I actually recommend is don't just pick one, pick three. <laughs> and compare and contrast. Why did they use this word? I also really like the NET Bible and the CSB. Both of them are very readable. And they, they kind of fall more in on the functional side. I think they're more readable than the ESV, the New King James, and the NASB. But they're also very close to word for word. In fact, there are many times when I'm preaching and I say, uh, this word I actually think is kind of a bad translation in the ESV. I think it's more like this. Jen reads along in her CSB and she says, oh, that's actually how the CSB has it, Aaron. So I think the CSB is very good. One thing I really like about the Net Bible is that it's got tons and tons and tons of notes. And most of the notes are, we translated it this way because. And that's very helpful. 
So I, if you really want my recommendation, I would say go with like the NASB, ESV, NET, or CSB, maybe all four, and just compare them as you read through it. All right, so I hope that helps whoever asked that question. I hope you get to, uh, hope you get to uh, really get into some study. Maybe we'll do another hermeneutics class real soon, and that is another one that I think is helpful on how to study. On to 1 John. So we're doing this study now, Christ is life. And I believe that, that when we center our life on Christ, we really offer other people more grace. We live in God's grace. We realize that Christ really is who gives us life, who gives us joy. So 1 John is writing. No one actually knows the date of 1 John. It's one of the most difficult books to date in the New Testament. Most, uh, uh, most theologians think it's probably around in the 90s. There's just some, uh, some heresies that start to arise later on in the first century, and a, a lot of theologians think he's writing to address these heresies. Along with no one really knows the date, no one actually knows the audience, who this is addressed to. Most people think, well, or theologians, well, if it was dated in the 90s, John was, was a pastor around this, the region of Ephesus. So it's probably a letter written to the house churches. There were many house churches in Ephesus. So it was probably a letter written to these house churches to correct some of the heresies. The, that's kind of the ideas that people have, have developed. But no one is actually for sure why or when it was written. I kind of follow along uh, uh, with those theologians. I find no reason to argue against them. So I just kind of say I think they're probably right. So with that in idea in mind, let's dig in. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So if you'll notice, John, John doesn't follow the typical Roman Greco style of epistle in those days. So, you know, typically when you read like Paul, you know, you've got the, who the letter is addressed to, maybe an, an introduction, and, and maybe a prayer. John skips all of that, and he writes kind of, not in a logical, flowing manner, but he writes in kind of a circular manner. So throughout this epistle, he's going to come back around to different themes, and he's going to show us how the, all these themes are related together. As a result, there will be some weeks when you're going to say, wait, haven't we already talked about this? And the answer is yes. Because he's already addressed this. And we see this happening already in this introduction. So he begins with that which was from the beginning. Now this is, if you're familiar with the gospel according to John, this already sounds familiar, right? In the beginning was. So John is concerned about the beginning. And part of the reason why he's concerned about the beginning is because that helps establish who Jesus is. This term, which was from the beginning, really means like from the from before creation. So he's laying out an argument right off the bat that Jesus was not a created being. Jesus did not have a beginning, and he will not have an end. 
Jesus is eternal, right from the bat, he's laying out this argument. That which was from the beginning. That which was before creation started. Before even there was a molecule. There was Jesus. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands. So here we've got a different engaging of the senses, right? Which we have heard. So he's talking through, hey, we, Jesus was physically here. We heard him. But we didn't just hear him. He didn't just teach us physically. There were vibrations that hit our ears that we could actually reference to when we talk about his teaching, like the T Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't just a written down sermon. It was a sermon that he actually preached. But that wasn't all which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. So here he's referencing a sight now, right? And some people would say, wow, that's kind of redundant. We've seen with our eyes and we looked upon. But really what he's saying here is, which we have seen with our eyes. And then this term, we looked upon, in the Greek means to scrutinize. So you could say we saw with our eyes, but if you didn't scrutinize, did you really see? There was this one time I was dropping Harper off in, a, in a Cubby's at Awana. And I saw a woman down there that looked like Suzanne Finney. If you're not familiar with Suzanne Finney, she, she attended here a long time ago. But I didn't scrutinize. I just saw out of the corner of my eye Suzanne Finney. And I, wa- and I just like turned over. I tapped the shoulder. And I said, hey, Suzanne. And she turned around. And it was not Suzanne. <laughs> I was fairly embarrassed. My face turned bright red. And thankfully, she knew Suzanne, and she was like, oh, I find that to be a compliment. I did not scrutinize with my eyes. How often have you done something like that? Where you saw something out of the corner of your eyes, you thought it was something. It turned out not to be that thing. John's saying, you can't make that argument here. I didn't just see a glimpse. I scrutinized. I tested, I looked, and I examined to see if there was a flaw. And it was Jesus, physically, here, in the flesh. That which is from the beginning, which is eternal, entered into humanity. That's what he's saying. But that's not all. We have touched with our hands. Now what's interesting here is this term, touched with our hands, is actually uh, a Greek term that they would use to describe how blind people would see. So if you think about it, a a blind person who's trying to figure out what they are holding, how might they do that? Would they feel around, right? You and I, because we can see, we might look at something and we might not even touch it. Or if we do touch it, it might be like a quick little touch. But a person who is blind examines with their hands. And they examine to figure out what it is. And they're going to touch in a way that you and I won't touch. And they've developed a whole way to touch in a way that you and I won't touch. That's what John is saying here. It's not that they just scrutinized with their eyes. It's that they also examined with their hands. And I think all the way back to Doubting Thomas, when he says, 
I won't believe it until I see it. And then Jesus appears, and what does he say? Say, here I am. Touch. These are where my wounds were. Examine. Scrutinize. He's laying out a very compelling argument here. And notice that he doesn't just say, I heard, I saw, I looked upon. On the testimony of one witness, you could kick that case out of court, right? But you need the testimony of, of two or more. And what he's saying is, we. It wasn't just John. It was a whole plethora of people. If you look over to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says over 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Christ. We live in a day and age that I think is actually fairly easy to deny the resurrection. And the reason why it's easy is because we're not as close to the evidence as John was. The further away you get from the evidence, the more and, the more, and more ability you have to deny the evidence. But the closer you get to the evidence, the more difficult it is to deny the evidence. So if you think back to the first century Jerusalem, Christianity was growing at an exponential rate. But if Jesus didn't, d didn't die and rise from the dead, it would have been really easy to refute as Christianity grew. And not only was it growing, but it was growing underneath persecution. You, were, uh, you could very easily end up dead to profess your faith in Christ. In Jerusalem, we see Stephen being stoned, and he wasn't the only one. Paul was given a certificate to go and persecute the church. And yet, as the persecution ramps up, we see it growing all the more. And why is that? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they would have just had like a, a line showing the tomb, saying this is where Jesus' body is. Go look for yourself. The evidence is right there. Don't believe those idiots. But instead, they couldn't refute it because the evidence was smacking them in the face. For us, it gets easier and easier because we get further and further away from the evidence. And yet I see other forms of evidence. I see evidence in changed lives. People who were once cold-blooded murderers, I've seen joy in their face. I was just telling my kids about a guy last night that I knew. I knew him when I was uh, around five years old. He worked for my dad. And he was cold. I mean, you could just see the hard-heartedness in his, in his eyes. Like you could see in his eyes, there was hate. He was mean. I was scared to be around him. And one night, he got drunk at a bar. Somebody insulted him. He pulled out a gun and shot him. Well, he was in prison. He heard the gospel. And he put his faith and trust in Christ. Years later, when he was finally out of prison, I got to meet him again. And there was a joy in his eyes that I never thought was possible. Even the most horrendous sinner you can think of is never too far gone to be saved by Christ, to be redeemed by Christ, and to be changed by Christ. There is always hope. And when we see that, we should celebrate and we should rejoice, and we should also see it as the evidence of a living Christ.
Because without Christ and without the gospel, those people would still be just as far lost. And if I'm being honest with you, I would be just as far lost as well. So he's giving this uh, very convincing evidence about the resurrection and, and the humanity and deity of Christ. And then he says concerning the word of life. Word of life is simply saying revealed God. This is how God has revealed himself. And it is through his word, and it is more specifically through Jesus Christ. So this is a reference to Jesus Christ. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, in this verse, you see two different uses of the term manifest. We hear a lot about manifesting these days. There's, it's kind of this new term that people like to use, like, I just manifest this thing, meaning like, if I think hard enough about it, it will appear. This term in the Greek, manifest, meant that, that something that already existed is now being revealed. That's what it meant. So what we have here is the word of life, God revealing himself, and, and making it manifest that it was always in existence. It was always there. But now it has been revealed. So he's arguing, once again, about the eternality of Christ, that he's always been. He has no creator. He's lived forever. And that he has also been revealed and has physically come. And once again, we see, we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, what's interesting is the first three verses of this uh, uh, here are one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And the main verb we don't get to until this part, we proclaim. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. So he has all these verbs about who Jesus is, and then he's saying, but we proclaim, we are telling you all about him. And then he gives us this purpose for this proclamation, this purpose statement for why he is proclaiming, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the only way that we can really have fellowship with each other, the only way we can truly be together in fellowship, is if we have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. If we don't have the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, then we're just another community center. We're just another community light. Now here in a couple minutes, we're going to go into the fellowship hall. We're going to have a potluck, and we're going to do what some Christians call fellowshipping. I think we shouldn't call it fellowshipping. We're going to go in there, and we're going to have dinner or lunch, and we're going to hang out. Oftentimes, when we use the term fellowship, we just mean hang out. But this term fellowship is so much more. In the Greek, it's koinonia, and it's so much more than just hanging out. It's having a bond, a relational bond for a purpose. So we are striving together for a goal. At Calvary Bible Church, our goal is that all would come to know Christ and grow in his grace. Come to know Christ and grow in his grace. And the bond that we have is through Christ. When I think of this term koinonia, fellowship, I think of my brother's who are both Marines. We have a, a guy that just graduated boot camp with us today. 
he can tell you a whole lot more about this than I can because I never went to boot camp. But my brothers talk about it and they tell you, you know, you go into boot camp as a bunch of strangers, but you come out as a brotherhood. And I can remember one of my brothers, he graduated boot camp, and it was right before the war in Iraq broke out in 2003. And we were all gathered, there was a bunch of us gathered around, and uh, was, there was somebody there with an opinion that we shouldn't be in Iraq. And he was making a bunch of different arguments. I can't remember all the different arguments, but at one point he insulted the Marine Corps. And my brother, who had just come out of boot camp, stood up and he said, no, you are insulting my Marine Corps brothers. If you don't shut up now, I'm going to punch you. That was the end of the argument. The whole point is that there was a brotherhood that they had entered into. There was a koinonia, a fellowship. It wasn't just that they were all striving for one goal. It was that they had this bond as they were striving for one goal. The church should be a similar place. That we are striving together with one goal, bonded in Christ. And in his grace. One of the ways that we do this is that we recognize who we are in Christ. That all of your past sins are not accounted against you. That that person that you were before you came to know Christ is not who you are now. That's not what defines you. Your sins don't define you, but who Christ is is what defines you. It's so important for us to understand. And I know some of you are saying right now, but I don't feel very saint-like because Christ calls you a saint. He calls you holy. He calls you pure. He calls you just. He calls you a masterpiece. And right now you're thinking about all of your sin and all this stuff that has torn you up, and you're thinking, but I don't fit that role. And for those of you, I want to remind you of the church in Ephesus, who most theologians think this letter is written to. Now, if you're not familiar with how the church was planted in Acts, I'll remind you. Paul goes there and he finds believers that are already there. They have a little bit of messed up theology, so he corrects their theology. And then he stays there and he preaches for two years. Get that in your mind right now. Two years he's in Ephesus preaching the gospel. And, and so much so that it says everyone in that region heard the gospel. And the church is growing exponentially. And people are putting their faith and trust in Christ for two years. And, and God is doing such miraculous signs through Paul to authenticate the message that people are just taking handkerchiefs that touched him so that they could heal the sick. Well, witchcraft was a huge deal in Ephesus at that time. And there were people that, that dealt with witchcraft, and they saw the power that God was working through Paul, and they thought, I want that power myself. So they started using the name Jesus. And there were some people who wanted to cast out a demon, and they used the name Jesus to cast this demon out. And the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul's name I recognize, but I don't know you. And this demon-possessed guy then turns on them and beats them up. And what happens is all of these people see the power of the gospel. And all of these believers who've put their faith and trust in Christ 
fallen some for two years, have been believers for two years already. Some maybe not as long as two years, but there are a lot of people that held on to this witchcraft for two years. They get together and they burn their witchcraft books. Now, I think this is so important for us to understand. Because for two years, they held on to their books of witchcraft. Now, witchcraft and the gospel don't go together. They're like oil and water. Witchcraft is, trying, is, is actually interacting with demonic forces to try to get your way. Christians should not be practicing witchcraft. But think about that for a second. For two years, some of them held on to their books of witchcraft. Some of them were still dabbling in the art of witchcraft. Now, if we had someone show up to our church today who professed to be a Christian, but had some books of witchcraft, there'd be a whole lot of us that would question their salvation. But Paul calls them saints. He calls them holy. For two years. Think about the other cultural sins that have impacted us. And sometimes when, when you come to know Christ, people expect just a 180 turn, and automatically you're living like this perfect holy saint. Well, God has called you perfect. He's called you holy. Well, I shouldn't say he called you perfect, but he called you holy. He called you just. He called you righteous. Because you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. You're no longer defined by those past sins. You're no longer defined by your current sins. And sometimes it takes years for our behavior, especially when it's been shaped by such a strong culture. It takes years for our behavior to catch up to our position. But what we as the church sometimes want to do is we want to take the role of the Holy Spirit. Instead of offering grace, we tell them, you can't be a Christian and. And it's okay to say witchcraft and Christianity don't mix. Like, they're like oil and water. But I want to emphasize, for two years, for two years, it took for their behavior to finally catch up to their position. They weren't kicked out of fellowship. Paul recognized that the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts, and he offered freedom for that Holy Spirit to work. Anytime we take the role of the Holy Spirit, we begin to mess things up. So we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us, that we may be bonded together in Christ, striving for the goal of preaching to the gospel, of preaching the gospel so that everyone would come to know and grow in Christ. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That word complete there is play ra'u. 
There's a little bit of debate about your, if this should be your joy or our joy. I won't get into that whole thing right now. But the point is that when we are in fellowship, in authentic community, sometimes it's rough as our rough edges get chiseled away. But there is joy in this community. There is joy when you are fully known, when you can bring forth your books of witchcraft, knowing that you aren't about to be judged. You're not about to be thrown out of the church, but you are about to be encouraged, knowing that you are growing in Christ. There's joy when you can come as your authentic self and you say, hey, look, I am jacked up, but Christ is transforming me. And when we can gather together and offer each other God's grace, knowing that each one of us is on a different walk and it has a different starting path, there's joy. So he writes to us, so that we may have fellowship and that our joy may be complete. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word, that you gave it to us, that you have revealed yourself through it. But even more than that, you came in the flesh, that you were, you were here and people could examine you, could scrutinize you, and, and to handle you. And you came so that we could be transformed. And we pray that you would help us to offer others grace in their transformation process as well. Help us to live in grace. That we wouldn't take over the job of the Holy Spirit, but we would hold fast to your word. And as we hold fast, securely, submitting to it, that you would continue to change us. In your name we pray.